0: Get in my previous church, one of our deacons, a dear lady called Rosemary, once said to me, Chris, you've got a very strong singing voice. Uh, you could have it trained. Um, <laughs> I never quite knew if it was a compliment or something really offensive. Anyway, I took it as a compliment. i been singing strongly ever since. Uh, so this morning, we continue our journey with uh, Elijah, who I think it's fair to say is a somewhat quirky, unconventional Old Testament Prophet. Now, of course, Elijah was in good company. When you look at most of the Old Testament prophets, uh, they were prophets of weirdness, if we're really honest. In fact, you would think that being eccentric, being a bit goofy, being a bit bizarre was actually in the person specification to be called in the first place. I like to think of myself in the days of Elijah. I think I'd fit right in. Um, a few examples for you: Isaiah, he used to walk around naked, prophesying. I, I don't plan to do that at all this morning. Jeremiah, he hid his underwear under a rock by the Euphrates, and, and if you know the story, he, he wore a bovine agricultural piece of hardware, that's not easy to say, uh, as he spoke to the nation. If you don't know the story, look it up. And then you've got, you've got Jonah, of course, who got, found himself stuck in the belly of a great fish for three days. Ezekiel, he was someone who ate a scroll. He lay on his side for 390 days. He cooked his feed, uh, food over a fire of manure. And he prophesied to dry bones, and they came to life. And then you've got Balaam, who rode a talking donkey. Anyone else feel like they would fit in well with Old Testament prophets? Uh, Admit to it, or I'll call you out. Well, the prophets were a strange bunch, weren't they? And yet God used this strange bunch to speak truth. And often they would speak truth to people who were being utterly disobedient. And in fact, they were people who didn't really uh, want to listen to God. We often think of prophets, don't we, as proclaiming the future. But in reality, more often than not, they spoke about the here and now. They spoke about God's word and they spoke God's challenge to a people often challenging them to to live out the character of God, to live out the way that God wanted them to live as a witness. Now, the Old Testament prophets uh, gave out warnings a bit like the one we got from the government last weekend on our mobile phones at three o'clock. Who got one of these? Anyone get one? Yeah, some of us got one of these. And the headline message is, Severe Alert, Severe Alert. Now, at the time uh, this message came to my phone, I happened to be with several hundred other scouts and scout leaders at a St. George's Day parade at the Priory. It was very eerie as hundreds of phones rang out with that strange whistling noise uh, around the church. Now, the vicar of the the Priory, lovely guy Charles, he got his warning at 2.59 and he said to me rather smugly, it looks like I was on the priority list. <laughs> well, typically I got mine at 3.03, four minutes later, which I guess tells you something about the denominational hierarchies in the UK, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but of course, some of you didn't get the message at all, and I'm very sorry for your loss. Elijah, in his day and in his way, was, similar, it was sounding a similar alarm to the people of God. He's saying, look, this is a severe warning, people. Would you please listen to what I'm saying to you? Pay attention, because the living God has got something to say to you that he needs you to hear. Now, the trouble is, most people treated Elijah's message and the message of the prophets generally in exactly the same way we treated the government's message to us last week. It was just a trial, something to be ignored, something to, to maybe joke about for a few days. Well, let me remind you of Elijah's context, because this is really important. Kay shared this a bit last weekend. They're under the leadership of a terrible, sin-compromising king, a chap called Ahab. And God's people find themselves wallowing in godless despair. They're worshipping idols, and they're living woefully, unfaithfully. Now, before we point the finger too quickly at them, do you know we human beings have this terrible ability to worship anything, is the truth, and they've slipped into this place and they're not living well before the true and living God. Now at this point in their history, which makes sense of their, of their lostness, God's people have lived under 19 different consecutive evil kings. And that spanned a time period of about 200 years. And we heard in our scripture last weekend that Ahab, Ahab was the most evil one of the lot. He was the worst of the worst. I mean, what a contrast to the experience we've had here in the UK. Seventy years under the reign of an excellent monarch who has followed God diligently, and we're about to coronate. um, Is that the right thing to say? It sounds like what you do to chicken, doesn't it? We're about to coronate um, another king, and the signs are that he's going to be a good egg uh, as well. We are blessed in this country by those who lead us on the whole. And as we discovered in chapter 17 of One King's last weekend, Elijah literally bursts onto the scene. He comes out of nowhere, and he obediently begins the thankless task of calling God's people back into relationship uh, with himself, and he's sounding what is definitely a severe alert. Now, God says to him, Elijah, I want you to prophesy to the king, to the nation, to speak out on my behalf about a drought which is about to come, and Elijah does it. And then Elijah heads off to a ravine where God tells him to hide, and he does that. He gets fed uh, bread by by ravens, and he gets meat from the raisins, ravens, uh, and then he drinks from a brook, which keeps on running, but then eventually the brook dries up because of the famine that he spoke about. And it's at this point in the story in chapter 17 where Elijah moves to this place called Zarephath, where he has this incredible, miraculous encounter with a widow and with her family, Maybe you know the story. She thinks that her family are going to die because of this terrible famine. And Elijah turns up to her and he says, no way, Jose, that's not going to happen to you. He was from Spain. And then he tells her to make some biscuits out of the tiny amount of flour and oil that's left. Now, you can imagine this, this woman is fraught with despair about the tiny amount she's got left to feed her famine. She's got nothing to uh, feed her family because of this famine. She does what Elijah says, and they eat the biscuits together that she's made, and then miraculously, the flour doesn't run out, and the oil doesn't run dry, and they eat biscuits for months and months and months. And that's the beginning of the doxology that goes, praise God from whom all biscuits flow. Where God supernaturally provides for Elijah in direct response to his unconditional obedience to God. That's what's going on here in the story. But then one day, tragedy strikes. One of the, this widow's sons dies. Now, Elijah, if you know the story, takes this boy's lifeless corpse into a bedroom. He stretches out on top of the corpse, not once, not twice, but three times, and eventually the boy comes back to life. Is anyone else's safeguarding alarm going off in your head at the moment? This is weird stuff, but, but here's the point. Elijah looks at an impossible situation, and he speaks faith Into it. Now, all of this convinces this widow that Elijah really is from God, and at the end of chapter 17, she says this Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Which then leads us perfectly into chapter 18 of 1 Kings, where we're going to ask God to feed us uh, today. But just before I read the passage, this is what I want us to learn from this text today. And I think David's song choices have been so helpful from this perspective. Above anything else in our lives, God wants to have all of our hearts. He wants to have all of our worship. He wants to have all of our focus. And he wants to have all of our adoration in every single sphere of our lives. He doesn't want us to compartmentalize our lives and say, well, that bit is spiritual and that bit is not. God is interested in the whole. Well, let's read. Uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6, say a little something, and then we'll uh, come back to the text. So keep your Bibles open if you've got them. It says this, after a long time, in the third year of the drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was the devout follower, believer in the Lord. While Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, remember, was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and with water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and all the valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we don't have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land. They were to cover. Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah going in the other. So several things are simultaneously happening in this story. God's people are still experiencing this drought. It's been going on for three years. And because of the drought, there's a terrible famine in the land. And King Ahab is desperately trying to find a way of keeping everyone and everything alive. And you'll know in an agrarian and farming-based economy, when there's no rain, literally everything shuts down and everything goes wrong. Elijah finds himself as number one on King Ahab's most wanted list because Ahab is blaming him for the famine that they're experiencing. And then at the same time as all that, Ahab's ungodly, power-hungry, violent, sexually manipulative, I can't say that word, word. manipulative, I'm speaking in tongues, can I have a translation? (laughs) Manipulative, that's it, wife Jezebel has made it her life mission to kill prophets like Elijah. And then we have Obadiah, who we discover in the text is is, uh, a senior civil servant to the king, and he's a devout believer in the Lord. And we read on in a minute that he's been worshiping God since his youth. Now, this man Obadiah has made it his life mission enabled by but conflicting with his day job to hide, to feed, to water these prophets of God in two caves so that Jezebel can't kill them. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, can you? Now, if you know the story, Obadiah is a bit like Corrie ten Boom, hiding Jewish people in her home to escape the Nazis during World War II. Right, you're up to speed so far. Let's read on uh, from verse 7. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him Obadiah recognized him, bowed to the ground, and said, is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied, go and tell your master Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or a kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or a kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you say to me, go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go to tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet your servant has worshipped the Lord since my youth. "'Haven't you heard about the way that I've been hiding people, the prophets from from Jezebel? "'I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and with water. "'And now you tell me, my master, to go and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me.'" Elijah said, "'As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today.'" So we discover that Elijah is like one of those celebrity preachers that people avidly follow on social media, and and he's a good one. Obadiah instantly recognizes him, and now he feels really conflicted because this famous, well-known prophet of God, Elijah, is gifting him, Obadiah, with a death sentence by suggesting that Obadiah should organize an audience uh, for Elijah uh, with the king. It's a brilliant conversation Obadiah, go and tell your boss that you have seen Elijah. Are you serious? He'll kill me, especially when I tell him that I don't know where you are, because God is going to whisk you away. It's going to be all right for you. You'll be safe, but I will be dead. God, why are you doing this to me? Don't you know that I've served you devoutly since I was a boy? I've been risking my life, hiding all these people. Have you ever done that before, God? God, why am I having a tough time? Because I've been good. So why is my life tough? And now here you are telling me to draw attention to myself by announcing to my master, I've seen Elijah, but guess what? I let him get away. Elijah? Yep. That's exactly what we're going to do. But here's the deal, Obadiah. I'm going to come with you. We're going to do this together. There's going to be safety in numbers. It's really tense stuff, isn't it? And next weekend, you can find out what happens between Elijah and Ahab. But today, I want us to focus on Obadiah because I think his story perhaps and arguably more than Elijah's story, has something that we can each relate to. You see, within this big story of Elijah is this tiny story about Obadiah, but it's no less significant than the big story of Elijah's. It's a small story, but it's still significant. You see, in Obadiah, we find a man seeking to live for the love of God. So what he's seeking to do. He's seeking to live for the love of God in a godless place, and the godless place where he's seeking to do that was his workplace. I wonder if that sounds familiar to your current context, or maybe if you're retired now, you think back to your previous work context. You were seeking to serve God in a godless place. Well, Obadiah, as I've already said, was a court official. He was in charge of the household of the king. He's a senior manager who was regularly in contact and communication with the king about the affairs of the nation. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but have you noticed that the majority of your trials in life don't usually come when we're gathered together in church like this on a Sunday morning? The real trials, the real challenges in life come when we're faced with drought-like conditions, when we're confronted with people who have got difficult personalities. you know any of those? When we're faced with temptation, when a multitude of pressures come our way. Oftentimes that happens in the workplace. Or if the workplace isn't relevant to you, maybe it's about your social space or it's about your family context or your family situation. Do you know the average adult is awake 16 hours a day, and of those 16 hours, we spend one hour to get ready for work. We spend 30 minutes driving in each direction, and then we work at least eight hours in the day. Ten out of our 16 hours in each day are invested in work and in delivering and doing that work. It's perhaps not surprising to say that God cares about who we are and how we live in the workplace, or the social space, or our family space, to make that application. The presence of God really matters in the places where we work. It's within the workplace that we have the greatest opportunity to encourage other believers who might be there, but two, to witness to those who don't yet know Christ. Now, here's the thing. Most of us don't work in a workplace where we're allowed to outwardly express our Christian faith, but still we're called to be ambassadors. We're called to live lives that reflect our Savior Jesus. And that crucially includes our workspace or our social space or our family space. Now, when you think about it, the experiences of Elijah and Obadiah couldn't be more contrasting, could they? Yes, they were both both devout believers, but Elijah appears before Obadiah, having just come from a time of special preparation and solitude with the Lord. He's just had this mountaintop experience with the widow and her son. So when the call comes from God to Elijah to go and present himself to wicked King Ahab, it's perhaps not surprising that Elijah just jumps straight in and says, Yes, I'll serve you, Lord. And I can tell you, I've been there. When things are going great with God, it's not difficult to step out in faith with God and to be his ambassador. But then we have Obadiah, and actually for him, things were quite different. Here's a man who's been working with unbelievers. He's been working in a context which is just full of idolatry. Obadiah probably hadn't had any close contact or much close contact with any other strong believers for most of his working day and most of his life. Even when he got away from work and he went off to the caves to go and spend some time with the prophets that he'd hidden, I doubt he had much meaningful contact. If you've ever tried to feed 100 people in two different locations, you'll know you don't have much time for meaningful chat. Elijah comes onto the scene. He's fantastically clear about the mission that God has called him to, but Obadiah understandably needs a bit more convincing that this really is God's good idea to go to King Ahab, But you know what I love about this story is that the success of Elijah's mission in this moment is entirely dependent upon a fear-filled, ordinary God follower. Do you know, I find that really encouraging. Elijah, as he looks at Obadiah, looked at Obadiah and said, you are a God-sent man, but I'm not sure Obadiah felt that way himself. But actually, here was the logical, indeed the perfect person to send to the king, somebody who could access the king. Somebody who could be in the king's presence in a millisecond. The trouble is that person couldn't see that himself. Isn't this brilliant? At this point in his mission, Elijah does not need another miracle. Elijah at this point in his mission doesn't need to do any of that weird prophet stuff. What he needs is an ordinary person of faith racked with fear who initially responds with all sorts of excuses. You know, I can relate to Obadiah. I wonder if you can. You see, Elijah doesn't need a miracle. He needs a person of faith, full of doubt, who has been diligently and consistently over a long period of time, been serving God in a dark place to steal the words of Esther for such a time or for such a moment as this. Elijah goes on to assure Obadiah that he really is that God's person for this moment and that he really is the man for the job. And together, they achieve what Elijah could never, ever have achieved alone. And he says to Obadiah, I'm going to come with you. We're going to do this together. We're going to show ourselves to the king today. Now, the emphasis of what uh, Elijah is saying here is you can count on me because I'm counting on the Lord. You can count on me because I'm counting on the Lord." But then in Obadiah, we see a person of incredible faithfulness over a very long period of time. And faithfulness is a much-needed quality in the kingdom of God. What is faithfulness? It's the outworking of a life full of faith. That's what faithfulness is. The outworking of a life full of faith. So together, they go on ahead and they seek to present themselves to King Ahab. But perhaps the big and perhaps the most shocking learning point from Obadiah's life is that God has his people in some very, very surprising places. Elijah's been faithful in obscurity. Obadiah is demonstrating faithfulness in the halls of power. Obadiah is a godly man, and God has put him in the palace next to Ahab, who, remember, has done more evil in the sight of God than any king who's gone before him. What a contrast, Obadiah. Ahab, godly, utterly ungodly. And I want to encourage you today, if you feel like you're currently serving in what is a dark and a difficult place, maybe that's your workplace, maybe that's your social sphere, maybe that's your family situation, maybe it's a charity that you volunteer in. If you think you've got a difficult boss in any of those contexts, imagine what it must have been like to work for Ahab. If you find that your work puts you in the middle of difficult ethical decisions and dilemmas, well, imagine what it must have been like for Obadiah. But Obadiah was where God had placed him to be and wanted him to be. You see, God puts his people in places of influence for purposes of grace. And you find that consistently throughout the Scriptures. And I want to suggest to you today, if you're in a difficult place, then just maybe God has placed you there for the purpose of his grace. There's so many stories. Think about the story of Joseph and the tough place he was in. You think about Esther, a godly woman in a God-forsaken place. You think about Daniel and how that story worked its way out for the good purposes of God. As you get into the New Testament, you think about Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was working in in Herod's palace as the household manager, a godly woman working alongside Herod. Think of the story of Herod for a moment. It was to that palace where she worked, where the head of John the Baptist was bought on a plate during one of Herod's parties. And yet there is Joanna, a faithful follower of Christ, How did these people, how do people like Obadiah get into these positions? Well, two reasons. Firstly, because they're highly gifted individuals. They've been gifted by God and they're exercising that gifting in the world. But secondly, I want to suggest it's because they were people of integrity. It's because they were people who could be trusted. It was because of that that God gave them favor in the eyes of the leaders, even in the most highest levels of society. God places his people in surprising places of influence for surprising purposes of his grace. Now, maybe you can relate immediately to Obadiah. He, he loved the Lord, but he lived in a workplace that every day of his life must have torn him apart. Maybe you volunteer in an organization where the leadership, to be honest, really is quite naff, but you hang in there because you know what you're doing is of value to others. Maybe you find yourself today in a marriage relationship where your partner doesn't yet know God, or maybe your partner has slipped away from the things of God. These can be tough places to be. If you find yourself in the workplace today, maybe you're serving in a company where things make you feel deeply uncomfortable. You find yourself saying, I'm a Christian. Should I even be here? How long can I keep on working with these people But this is true, isn't it? And those of you who have been retired can look back and say this is true, I suspect. That if you're looking for a career where you won't experience conflict of conscience and you've got very, very few choices, we all experience it in the workplace. The Christian teacher who says, how can I teach this godless curriculum? The pharmacist who says, can I really supply these pills over the counter The Christian lawyer who wrestles with whether they can really defend a client. The Christian banker who's saying, should I really be investing in this particular company? The Christian politician and, hey, we need to pray for them, who are wrestling with the question, can I support this particular compromise? And the list goes on and on and on. It's the real world in which Christians are called to live. And it's in the real world that God can use you most impactfully. Do you know, I had more opportunities to be a witness for Christ when I worked in the insurance world than I've ever had in the ministry world. I really miss it. But you know, the darker the world becomes, the greater the pressure there is on Christians to start withdrawing, to running away. You know, it's not easy to live in the shoes of Obadiah. But I think his career in Ahab's uh, palace is of huge importance for every Christian who might struggle with these kinds of questions. You see, here's what we learn from him. God places his people in every sphere and at every level. Why? Because God calls his people to be lights that shine in sometimes very dark places. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you find yourself in that place, don't shy away from your position of influence because it's difficult. God had placed Obadiah in this position of influence to be an influence to Ahab. Now, when you think about it, there were a 100 other men, weren't there, who you might think were better qualified uh, to go and preach the word of God. Where were they? They were hiding in a cave. But there was only one man who was standing at the right hand of Ahab, and that was Obadiah. And the best that Obadiah could do for God in this moment was not to abandon his job and say to himself, I'm going to go off and be a preacher because somehow that looks easier. He would have been the 101st preacher. And let's face it, the world has got enough preachers. Isn't that true? Well, that was a muted amen. (laughs) The best that he can do is persevere in his high power, high pressure position. Take him out of the palace and so much is lost. He's a man with influence and he stays in the palace and all the time he has to be so careful about what he does. And he says he works from the inside and everything in his life is about staying faithful over a long period of time. And it must have felt like it was tearing him apart. moments. Elijah, Obadiah, two brothers in the faith. One is a prophet and the other is a politician. Their callings are different and then God brings them together in this single small story. Now, if you were Elijah, it might have been very tempting in this moment to say to Obadiah, what on earth are you doing working in that God-forsaken palace? How can you possibly serve a king who's done more evil than anyone who's ever gone before him? Obadiah, would you please come out of that dark place and would you be separate? have nothing to do with the world of darkness. And then I imagine Obadiah saying something like, Elijah, I thank God for your calling, but would you please understand that my calling is different? You're called to confront people from the outside. I'm called to influence from the inside. And anyway, Elijah, separation is a matter of the heart. God's put me next to Ahab, and I've been able to do things that you and no one else will ever be able to do. God put me here. I know that Ahab is an evil king, but God has put me next to him. As I close, can I encourage you today that When you feel pressure to withdraw from your profession or your volunteering world or from the social media space, from your family space, because it's a dark place, would you remember today that God calls Obadiahs as well as Elijahs? There are way too many Elijahs, arguably, and there are not enough Obadiahs. God puts light into some dark places because that is where the light is needed the most. And as you think about Obadiah and you put yourself in your shoes, would you remind yourself, as I remind us about Obadiah, that God calls us to stay, stand firm right in the place where he's placed us to be. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that has frustrating limitations. And sometimes we have to wrestle with questions of conscience. Charles Spurgeon once said this. I love it. Grace can live where you would never expect it to survive for one hour. A brilliant quote. Grace can live where you would never expect it to survive for even one hour. Grace has a long shelf life. And faithfulness is not so dull that it only ever comes in one flavor. If you know the story, Obadiah saves a hundred people by working within this corrupt system plus some. The more corrupt the workplace, the more it needs godly people if there's a way to remain in place without adding to the evil ourselves, and that's the big caveat to all this, isn't it? If we can remain in place without adding to the evil ourselves, then it may just be that God wants us to stay in the space where he's placed us. Now, I don't know what that means for you today, and we'll all have to make our own individual application. Maybe you do find yourself in a tough place. Would you shine in the darkness? Maybe you're in a workplace where... Your boss is a tyrant. Shine in the darkness. Maybe today you find yourself in your family situation and it's difficult and you wrestle with compromise. Would you shine in the darkness? Maybe you're volunteering in a charity or your social club or whatever is a difficult place to be. Would you shine in the darkness? Maybe on social media, we just need to shine in the darkness because it's just possible that God has placed you there for such a time as this to make a difference in the world. I honor every faithful Obadiah in the room today. Would you know that God's face is smiling upon you as you persistently, as you consistently seek to shine a light in a dark place? Can we pray together? Lord, I love this um, this little story, and actually it's not a little story at all. Um, a little man, a man... Wrapped with guilt, wrapped with wrestles, wrapped with doubt, but described as being faithful and devout all at the same time. A man who actually I find myself able to relate to this morning. And Lord, you did a beautiful and a wonderful thing in him and through him. And Lord, today I want to thank every single Obadiah every single Obadiah represented amongst us today who is living faithfully and doing their bit to shine light into a dark place. I want to thank you today, Lord, for every Obadiah who makes the ministry of so-called Elijah's possible. Lord, together we pray for all people including ourselves, people of influence, in the workplace, in the political world and far beyond, that you would let our little light shine in this dark world to make a difference. Lord, for every difficulty, every limitation, every question of conscience that we wrestle with, We pray your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.